And you can turn in the, your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. And recall, this is, a, this is the second Sunday. All um, uh, children stay, stay in and um, we worship together as a family. <clears throat> of course, if you have need of the nursery, it is uh, out this door to my left and then to the right there and you'll, you'll find it. But I think it's good that families spend some time worshiping together. Well, we're in Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse, verse 43 through verse 49. And let me just say that this is the conclusion of a sermon. So today we will, we will look at the ending of a sermon. It is the conclusion of the greatest sermon ever preached, um, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. And so I I do want to make sure that we keep in mind that when we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, we treat it just like a sermon because, well, that's what it is. So remember, it's a sermon. And I say that because I think too oftentimes the the Sermon on the Mount has become so well known or so, um, so often repeated, it's easy to to treat it like a series of proverbs. And proverbs are just short, pithy, wise statements. You know, like, <clears throat> blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we might separate that out, or we might say, you know, uh, take the log out of your own eye and treat that as a short, separate statement. But it's not a short, separate statement. It is part of a sermon. So we need to treat the Sermon on the Mount as a sermon. That is, it has a theme. There's, a, there's something that Jesus is talking about, telling us that nobody, very few, I don't know of anybody who gets up and just repeats Proverbs. Proverbs don't necessarily um, have, one proverb doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the next proverb. If you go to the book of Proverbs, you'll find that oftentimes The one that follows has nothing to do with the one that precedes it. They're just short, separate statements. They're wise statements. They're things we can take to heart. But they they oftentimes have nothing to do with what precedes or what follows. But sermon, on the other hand, the statements have everything to do with what, what precedes or what follows. And so, anyways, this is a sermon. And one of the things we are saying, so let's go ahead and, uh, having made that statement, let's go ahead and consider... Uh, what the sermon is about, and perhaps we should review a little bit about where we have been. And one of the things, so by way of review, one of the things we, we, we need to note is that Jesus is talking to his disciples. And so this is a message to his disciples. Now, a disciple is just a learner, a student. Um, perhaps even a better idea would be an apprentice. And there were a lot of people standing around or listening to this message. We see it's kind of a melting pot of people from Gentiles to Jews to um, religious leaders to those who were outcasts. And we see a wide range of people who are listening to this sermon. Some of them are definitely followers of Christ, the twelve are the 12 apostles or the 12 disciples are included. There seems to be a larger group of disciples, but we can't assume that every single person who is listening to this is a disciple, and yet it is directed to disciples. So if you want to be a disciple 
of Jesus Christ, we should probably look at this sermon because this is who Jesus is directing it to. So today, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ, this message is for you. However, if you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ and you're just kind of wondering what this Jesus character is all about, those people were also listening to this sermon. And from there, they could find out, well, I guess that's what it takes to be a follower of Jesus and That sounds good. Or no, that doesn't sound good. There were probably even unbelievers in this group who wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And yet, perhaps it might be beneficial to them. So wherever you're at in your spiritual walk today, Sermon on the Mount um, is for you. So what does it mean to be a disciple? Ultimately, this is what this message is is about and, the, and disciples all begin at the same place and we all begin recognizing our spiritual poverty blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are the poor Matthew says blessed are the poor in spirit and we we talked about how poor here certainly includes those who are economically deprived but not exclusively in fact this idea of poor in this that, that Jesus uses um, speaks most often about those who are spiritually poor, those who have no standing or merit before God. And so blessed are you who understand that you have no merit before a holy God. You come to him empty handed, not with some treasure trove of gifts that somehow he is going to find appealing. And on that basis, say, oh, well, I'm glad you're here because you got all this good stuff. No, it's the person who says, I got nothing, Lord. And will you have anything to do with a guy or a gal like me who's got nothing? And Jesus says, you're the blessed ones because to you belongs the kingdom of of heaven. You're going, but I got nothing to give him. Exactly. And that's where disciples begin. And then after that, we learned the grand ethic of what it means to be a disciple. And that is that we are to love like God. And God begins the love ethic, this grand ethic ethic begins by saying, this is how you love. You love your enemies. Oh, well, we're starting off big time here. Can't I start like loving the people who love me? No, you're going to begin loving your enemies. And the way you love your enemies is not having good thoughts or feelings towards them. It is actually doing good for them, blessing them and praying for them. And this ethic of love that the disciple then uh, extends is uh, is unusual. It even loves when persecuted. It even loves when mocked. It even continues to love repeatedly, even though repeatedly spurned. And then the thing we approached last week is that disciples are like their teachers. Disciples become like their teachers. And I suppose then that the disciple who makes a disciple, we reproduce in kind. In other words, we need to be faithful learners of Jesus Christ because as we go out and make disciples, they're going to look like their teacher. So hopefully we will look like Christ. And those whom we disciple will also look like Christ. And so that's kind of where we've been 
Here's where I hope to go. So by way of preview, we're going to bring the Sermon on the Mount to a conclusion today. And there are a couple of things that I hope to, a couple of high points that I hope to hit today. And the first one is Jesus gets right down to... Oh, I hate to use a pun, but he gets to the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue is a changed heart. And that a changed heart is critical for a disciple. That is, a transform, and a transformed heart will be evidenced by observable action. In other words, you can't see my heart. But you can probably see what's in my heart by the way I behave and the way I act. And this is where Jesus is going to go. He's going to say that a changed heart is evident because of the way you live out your life. And so while the heart cannot be seen, the fruit of the heart can. And fruit, then, is evidence of the root. Fruit is evidence of what is inside us. So the first thing is this critical um, understanding that we need to have a changed heart. And the second thing that I hope to address is that a life that is built on the words of Christ will withstand the test of time and eternity. That it is a that building our lives upon the word of Christ, not just hearing the words of Christ, but actually building our lives on the word of Christ um, is a stable foundation and it can withstand whatever comes your way. So. Those are the two big areas I hope to go. So let's go ahead and read our text this morning in Luke chapter 6. Beginning with verse 43 and going on through the end of the chapter. This is the word of Christ. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from the bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of his heart the mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will, tell you, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep, and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. And so we begin with this idea of for no good tree bears bad troop, for again, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. And I just got to make a couple introductory remarks and, um, because I think it's important for interpretation. And you'll notice that this verse begins with the three-letter word for. Um, for. So for tells us that this is actually connected with the previous verse. This is not a new section. Perhaps in your Bibles it is a new section, but it's not. In Jesus' speech, he didn't have... Um, verse numbers, nor did he have uh, title headings or anything like that. He just spoke. And this four tells us that whatever he's saying is connected with what preceded. And what preceded was, <clears throat> how is it that you see the speck in your brother's eye, but don't see the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take out the log that is in your own eye. Then you'll be able to see clearly enough to remove the speck from your brother's eye for no good tree 
Do you see what's going on here? So we need to understand that this is not an, a, a, a new section, but rather this is speaking of teachers who need to remove the log out of their own eyes so that they can be see clearly enough to remove the speck out of their brother's eye because no good tree bears bad fruit and a bad tree doesn't bear good fruit. In other words, folks, teachers reflect what's at the core of their lives. Teachers reflect what is in the very core of their life. And if we are self-righteous, hypocritical speck removers, we would find Christ saying, you hypocrite. And that as teachers and as followers of Christ who are going about seeking to encourage others to follow Christ, we need to first address our own self-righteousness. And we will see that, ev- that fruit is the evidence of the root. Because a good tree doesn't bear bad fruit and a bad tree doesn't bear good fruit. And then he goes on. Sometimes Jesus' words are just so self-explanatory. You, you really don't need me. But you got me, so I'm going to comment on them. But I mean, really, it's so basic. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from um, bramble bushes. In, in other words, you produce what you are. You, you don't get apples from pear trees, Right? You just don't. So what you produce reflects what you are. If you produce an apple, you're an apple tree. And if you produce peaches, you're a peach tree. You produce what you are. Watermelons do not come from apple trees and righteousness does not come from a vulgar heart. Because we produce what we are. And so I'll just kind of go off a little bit. This is why it's so important that we have good teaching. This is why Jesus says, you, disciples become like their teacher. Christ is our, our primary teacher. But Christ has also given the church leaders. And we need to be very discerning regarding who leads the church of Christ. Who leads the church of God. Who leads the church on Randall Place. This is why we try to make a big deal when we are selecting elders or leaders, or even Bible study leaders. Who are you? What is your life like? When we, when, when we chose our last group of elders, we really focused on the biblical understanding of the, the characteristics of an elder. You'll notice I said the characteristics and not the qualifications. Because the Bible doesn't give us any qualifications, doesn't really give us many qualifications. It doesn't say an elder or a pastor needs to be a PhD or something else. Those are all, that's fine. The elder or the pastor does not need to be, you know, a, a great financial individual, does not need to know how to build teams, doesn't tell us the 
the qualification, but rather it tells us everything. Choose people of character. Now, those other things are still important. You may need somebody who's a good financial person. You may need to have somebody who is great at connecting other people, networking individuals. You may need all of these things. The only really qualifications the Bible tells us is that you need to be able to teach God's word, at least for an elder. But there are other leadership positions where, again, it gets down to deacons. Teaching isn't the issue, but character is always the issue. Why? Because you're going to become like your teacher. I praise God that in this church we, we have good leaders. Not just our elders, and, and I'm grateful for, for Jaime and Nelson and for the love they have for this church and how they have um, prayed for the church and their, their leadership and their assistance. And, um, but we also have good people who lead a wide range of ministries here, nursery and, and passing out bulletins, greeting people in the parking lot, but character, I remember a, an individual, a pastor, and he, he needed a new music minister, and, and we were praying about it. He's going, man, I have these two candidates, and they're both really good, and one is just a really, really great musician. I'm just unbelievably talented musically. And the other is, is a good musician, but certainly not less, but there's something about him, and, I, and I'm no expert in church staffing. But I did try to point him to Scripture. I said, go with the person of character. If they're not quite as good a musician, but they have higher character qualities, go with the character. I don't know which way he went. But I think that's the biblical understanding of things. Because we produce what we are. And we become like our leaders. And then Jesus goes on and says, now he really gets to the heart of the issue. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. Out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And the first thing that struck me in this is the idea of good people and bad people, which is anathema in our society today because nobody's really bad. How dare you call? Who are you to judge me? Well, you'll need to listen to that last week's sermon to get the answer to that. Um, uh, and by the way, we are to judge people. <clears throat> um, so, anyways, you'll have to listen to that last week's. But, but there are good people and there are bad people. And so Jesus is saying there are bad people and you know it. And there are good people. And, and out of the heart... Out of one's person's heart, we're going to see the fruit of what's in their heart. You probably might ask, I wonder what makes the heart good. And perhaps by the time we get to the end of this message, we'll see some of the things that make the heart good. But I would suppose that it at least begins in what Luke records in chapter 3, verse 7, which is repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and bring forth fruits of repentance. So I would... I would say probably one of the very basic things of what makes a heart good is it begins with repentance. And perhaps, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who confess to God, I am a spiritual nothing and I got nothing of merit to earn your favor, so here I am. What can you do with a person like me? Perhaps this is where the heart begins. We'll talk a little bit about that in a second. And then we have to ask ourselves the question, who's good? And I, and I want to address this because 
I would say that this may be the most common misunderstanding in, in the church. Not just, I'd love to say, you know, outside in the world, people don't understand who is good. But I would argue, perhaps, that in the church, we have misunderstood this idea of who is good. If you were to go do a, a survey out on the street and you were to ask, are people generally good or are people generally evil? I guarantee you that the majority of people would say at their core, people are generally good. They just make some mistakes. They do bad things, but they're really good people in, in their heart. And people, they either don't know, they've never been trained, they were raised wrong, but they're really, they really have a Good heart. How many of you know people who are just really vile and somebody defends, but they have a good heart? No, they have a bad heart because out of the heart, the, the, their actions come. They don't have a good heart. They have a wicked heart. Because that's the, that's, the root is bad and so the fruit is bad. Well, they just don't know any better. So who's good? Too often times we think it's just, well, the problem is nurture um, and not nature. That we just need to be trained a little bit better, a little bit more education, a little bit more knowledge, and then we would be good. This, there's nothing new about that idea. Socrates taught it. He believed that evil was a matter of ignorance. And so by gaining knowledge through thoughtful discussion, one could become good. In other words, sin is the result of ignorance. If you just knew more stuff, then you could overcome your ignorance and become a good person. And so he ran around trying to teach people to be good, teaching them knowledge. Well, the greatest or most well-renowned philosophers in human history, and he was dead wrong. I don't care how much knowledge or information you have, your information will not change the heart. He's not the only one. Taught that? And in the church, Charles Finney taught it. Charles Finney's well-renowned for all of his great revivals. The man was a heretic. I don't know what else to tell you. The man did not teach the truth. He taught that man is basically neutral. He was a Pelagian, and you can study that Pelagian. Basically, man is not corrupted by Adam's fall, and we are just basically, we choose wrong, and that's why we're wrong. That's why we do bad, because we choose bad. It was completely off, but that was accepted by the church. So now that I've pointed out guys like Finney and Socrates, let's look at the biblical position. Biblical position is completely different. The biblical position is uh, completely different from human wisdom or vain philosophy. And the biblical position is that man by nature is broken and fallen. That is our nature. Let's look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12 and verses 18 and 19. And I think I have that up on the screen. I hope I put that up there. I did. Look at that. 
And this is what Paul says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We call this inherited guilt. That is, we are legally responsible. We are held legally responsible Because Adam sinned and therefore all became sinners, all became guilty. And I know some of you are going, that's just not fair. How in the world can you hold me guilty for something some guy did a long, long time ago? That's a big subject. But sin was imputed to us by one man's disobedience. But I would ask this. How is it fair that through one man's obedience, righteousness is imputed to you? If you believe it's unfair that one man's unrighteousness was credited to you, then you must also think it's unfair that one man's righteousness was imputed to you. And Christ would then have to die individually for every single individual who ever repented. We would be crucifying Christ millions and millions and millions of times. No, but there is this idea of federal headship where one man sinned and all became sinners. That's just the biblical position. You can say God is unfair or whatever. All right? But this is the biblical position, and it is clear. But here's what else is clear. Through one man's righteousness, all were made righteous. That is, that Christ does not need to come back to life, live a perfect life for you, and then die a violent, horrible death on your behalf for you and then get reborn and come die for somebody else. His righteousness is imputed to you. So we have this inherited guilt, but wait, it gets worse. We also have inherited corruption. And you were dead by reason of your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are not guilty. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because that's our nature. We are by nature children of wrath. And you all know this. You observe it all the time because not one of you who are parents ever taught a child to sin. You don't do it. You teach them to behave. You teach them manners. You teach them to be selfless. You teach them all of these godly characteristics because if you leave it to their nature... One of the first words that a child probably learns, I'm no expert here, but it's probably the word mine. It's probably one of my first words that I learned, probably one of your first words. It's probably mama, dada, and mine. And then we know mine really well. See, the Bible goes on and tells us through a variety of passages of text, Romans chapter 3, 9 through 20, maybe the most um, concise um, 
statement there. There is none righteous, no, not even one. First of all, in, in, in Romans chapter 1, Paul goes ahead and talks about how all the Gentiles are guilty. And you can hear all the Jews saying, Amen, those wicked Gentiles, you got it. Man, they're just nasty, vile people. And then Paul, I think, echoing Amos, gets down and says, Yeah, but then how about you, you so-called children of God? You say don't steal, but you steal. You say don't, don't obey idols, but you listen, you... You bow down to idols. How are you any different? And so Paul ends up saying Gentiles are guilty. Jews are guilty. And then he ends up saying, you know, there is none righteous. No, not even one. And then he just piles up all of these scriptures, just saying how far man has fallen. Jeremiah, Jeremiah puts it very concisely. He says the heart's wicked above all else. Who can know it? Your heart's wicked. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 and 2, we were by nature children of wrath. John, Jesus even says in John 8, 34, the one who sins is a slave to sin. So here's the idea. The scripture then rejects this idea that we are born morally in a morally neutral state. We are born by nature children of wrath with corrupt hearts. And you're like going, man, this is just like a downer sermon. Because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it seems then to me, if I'm following Jesus' line of thinking, what is needed is not better behavior, not even better motives, but a completely new heart. See, because if the root is evil, the fruit is evil. And you don't change the root by changing the fruit. You have to change the root. You're going, well, how do you do that? I can be a better person. That's why legalism is so, so common and so accepted because I can do the rules. Give me the list of rules that I need to follow. I can, I can keep that. Oh, Jesus is saying, I, that's not the issue. The issue is you need a new heart. Now you're saying, well, how do you do that? Because I can't do that. You're absolutely right. You cannot change your heart. You cannot change the root of your tree. So we come and we read how Jesus says, this is why you need to be born again. Yeah, you need to start all over again. We need to tear down everything that was and build up everything that is brand new. Ezekiel said it very well in Ezekiel chapter 36, 24 through 27. This is perhaps one of the great passages on being born again. And yes, it's found in the Old Testament. But here it is. And by the way, this is what Jesus was referring to when he he's talking to Nicodemus saying you need to be born again. That which is of water is born, that which is born of water and that which is born of the spirit. Here it is. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you the heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is what it means to be born again, to become a new creation that God 
purifies us and cleanses us, that God gives us a new heart, that God puts his spirit in us and God causes us to walk in his statutes. This is why we need new roots, not new fruits, because out of the new root will come abundant fruit. So Jesus gets down. Do you want to be my disciple? This is what it means. It means that you need to start all over again. And this confused Nicodemus says, well, do I have to go back into my mother's womb? How does that happen? No, you need God to do a miraculous work in your life. You need God to do something supernatural. You need God to do what you cannot do. And when the root is fixed, the fruit will follow. See, fruit does not change the tree. As I've stated, we do not need new fruit. We need to become new trees. And this is exactly what Jesus came to do. And I think is at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus begins talking. You need to become, you need to cast aside all your hypocritical self-righteousness. And you need to look at your heart. And if your heart has not been renewed, well, that's what he came to do. And then he brings up this amazing conclusion. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Here's the bottom line. Jesus is Lord, but before we get there, we should note that everybody wants heaven, but everybody wants it on their own terms. And the final section of the sermon concerns the lordship of Jesus Christ. We all desire the benefits of being a disciple, but very few desire the bearing of the cross of being a disciple. We desire the benefits of being a disciple without bearing the cross that is required of a disciple. And Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? No, it's just doing what he says. James picks this up and says we need to be doers of the word, not merely hearers of the word. Where did James get that? Well, he got it from Jesus. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? This is, you know, Matthew also has a parallel account of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew's um, statement on this is much more frightening, isn't it? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't, don't do what I say? And many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, we did all of these great things in, in your name. And he will say, I never knew you. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? In other words, there might be those who have a pretense of intimacy with the Lord. But, John, but Jesus says in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Who loves Jesus? The one who has my commandments and keeps them. I'll unpack that in just a few moments. And so, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And then Jesus gets down and he gives two illustrations. He talks about his word and he gives us these two um, interesting illustrations. Um, And the first one is of the wise builder. And the wise builder hears the word of Christ and then acts upon them. And that wise builder is like the man who builds his house on a rock. And the storms come and the floods come and it buffets the house and the house stands because it has a firm foundation. And then he talks about the, the foolish individual who hears the word of Christ but does not act. And they are um, the one who is like a builder who builds their house on a 
without a foundation or on an unstable foundation. And the storms arise and the, and the waters and the floods come and the house collapses and great was its destruction. <clears throat> Here's the thing. From the outside, both houses appear identical. The only difference was the foundation. You don't see the foundation. But it was this unseen aspect of the house which caused it to stand. And the quality of one's house, perhaps in this instance, the quality of one's life is revealed in trial. That is, how do you deal when the floods come? Will you stand in Christ when a loved one When the tests come back positive, when an innocent child is lost, perishes, where's your life going to go? How many of you know people who said, well, I used to follow Christ and then I had this crisis in my life. And if that's the way God is, then I had nothing to do with him. A house built without a foundation and great was its destruction. Others have been through severe, severe crisis. And here they are serving the Lord. You're wondering, how did they do that? How did they get here? How is it they're still standing on Christ? Because they built a good foundation. They believed God's word and did it. Here's the other very interesting thing about what Jesus is saying here. It's certainly, it's not explicit, but it certainly should not be ignored. Notice the value that Jesus puts upon his word. I mean, this is a pretty bold statement, don't you think? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, he is like this, a wise man. Now, really, who in this congregation can say that statement? Those of you who hear my word, can I get up here and say, those of you who hear my word and do them, you're wise. Jesus exalts his word. In fact, Jesus equates his word with the words of God. In Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, you'll remember Jesus said this, You've heard it said, you shall not murder. Who said that? Yeah, God. But I say to you, really? What kind of statement is that? I know God said don't murder, but here's what I say. You're either God or you need to be quiet. This is what Jesus says. I know you've heard it said that you shall not murder, but let me tell you what I say. This is what Jesus is saying here. The one who hears my word and acts upon them is the one who will be able to overcome the trials of life and eternity. The words of Christ are then equaled to the word of God. And we see this then throughout Scripture. Romans ten seventeen. There we go. Yeah. Oh, Romans three or Colossians three sixteen. Let the word of Christ. That's interesting. Let the word of Christ, not the word of God. 
He doesn't need to say the word of God. He can say the word of Christ because the word of Christ is the word of God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then let's look at this Romans passage. It's one that we, we all know, one you've probably heard, Romans ten seventeen. I think it's the next one. Yep, I got it. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Really? Faith comes through hearing the word of Christ? Notice he doesn't say it comes through the word of God. He doesn't need to because the word of Christ and the word of God are the same thing. When Jesus, after Jesus' crucifixion, after his resurrection, but prior to his ascension, it says that he was around for 40 days and he began teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. So his words are to be known, his words are to be believed upon, and his words are to be acted upon. And kind of in the, the realm of theology, we might identify this as knowledge, assent, and trust. That is, we must first know the word of Christ. We must know what he says when he says, come on to me, or when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into the Father but my me. You may know that word. That's great. But in order to believe it, you have to first know it. Faith comes from hearing. They have to first hear the word of Christ. Well, then there's assent or agreement. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes into the Father but through me. Well, I know that, but do I agree with it? That's a whole other step. There are plenty of people who've heard that word. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. They know it, but I don't believe it. Okay. There are many people then who know that word and believe it. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Yeah, I've heard it, I know it, and I actually believe it. But not everybody applies those things to their life. And this is where Jesus is getting to. This is the trusting aspect. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. People may know it. People may say, yes, that's true. But will you actually trust your life to that word? Will you actually believe And say, well then, if he's the only way to salvation, then I will throw my lot in with him 100%. Man, I got no plan B. I'm jumping off this cliff. And I'm expecting fully that Christ will rescue me. See, there's a whole lot of people who believe or have heard. There are a whole lot of people who will agree. But who's going to be the one who jumps in, goes all in, basically, pushes in all their chips. This is it. It's do or die. Jesus says, this is the wise person. Yeah, you just don't know it. You just don't say, yes, it's true. You say, yeah, I'm going to lean and live my life on those principles. I may do it imperfectly. I may fail. I may need to fall back on his word that if you sin, we have a faithful and just high priest who will forgive us of our sins. I probably have to lean on that word a lot. But I'll believe it. And we will see then that obedience withstands the test of both time and eternity. In this life, leaning upon Christ is a solid foundation. But on that last day when you stand before the Lord, it is a certain word. And it will, it is true, not only here in this life, but also in eternity. So I'll conclude with this. The Sermon on the Mount is a call to, to obey Jesus' teaching and authority. 
And the choice now is placed on the listeners. You know, I find it interesting in this sermon, there's no altar call or place for a decision. He doesn't say now if you'll all make a decision. Luke almost seems to say that the choice is so logical that a solid standing home is better than one that will collapse in trial and one that won't withstand eternity. Luke's almost like, why would you choose anything else? It would make no sense to choose a bad uh, a poor a house built on a poor foundation. If you have the choice of a, cho- of a house on a good foundation and a house on a poor foundation, why in the world, knowing those two things, would you accept a house on a poor foundation? That just makes no sense. Luke seems to think that this is like the most logical thing in the world to come to Christ and say, yes, I'm going to trust you. But ultimately, the Sermon on the Mount is not directed to our ears. It is directed to our hearts. Much of my sermon today has been directed to your ears and perhaps to your head. I hope that through the Spirit of God, it can work its way to your heart. But that requires a work of the Spirit. And Jesus did not direct this just so that we could hear it and and know nice words and be comforted by nice words. He directed it to our hearts. And he directed it to our hearts so that on the last day, when we say, Lord, Lord, he will say, I know you. Inherit the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world. This is the great blessing that Christ has given to us. This is his sermon. And it only makes sense to not only hear it, but to believe it. And not only to believe it, but to put it into practice, into our lives. And you will be a wise person and you will withstand the trials and difficulties of this life and it will, and in eternity, our great God and Savior will say, I know you. I know exactly who you are. Welcome in. Inherit the kingdom. So let's stand and we're going to pray. If you have never trusted in Christ as your Savior, as both your Lord and your Savior, this would be a time I'd love to talk with you about it. Um, We're not I'm not opposed to altar calls or anything like that. I'm just not going to um, beg and plead. Um, I never see Jesus begging and pleading. He just says, follow me. So I'm going to say, Jesus says, follow me. Uh, my wife and I would love to talk with you. If, if you have a place where I'd like to know more about this Jesus thing, I'm not sure I want to be a follower of his, but I'd like to know a little bit more. Uh, we would love to talk with you. Nelson and Beth would love to talk with you. Jaime and Sherry would talk with you about what it means to follow Christ. There are many people in here who would love to talk to you about that. Um, and the door is open. We would love to share with you what it means to have life in Christ. And, you know, that thing's still full, isn't it? We, we could just keep on going. We, we could, you know what, if you wanted to come to Christ, we would just take you right back there. I'm sure a few of us would stick around for that. So with that, let's go ahead and pray. Our Father, you have been so good to us and you've called us your own. And Lord, I pray that we would be people who say, Lord, Lord, and do what you say. I know none of us do it perfectly, Lord God. We all fall short. I'm far from perfect. Lord, I pray that you'd help me get the log out of my own eye. I might see clearly enough to get the speck out of somebody else's. Let us not be self-righteous, Lord God. It's easy to be. I pray, Father God, that you would change our hearts. 
Change the root, Lord God, that the fruit that we bear is a great blessing. Help us, Father God, to say, Lord, Lord, and do what you say. And be and so prove to be your disciples. So have mercy upon us, Father. Grant us favor. And help us to love like you love. In Christ's name, amen.